Hello, and welcome to the GVA Legal Podcast. My name is Jean Kambuni, and I'm your host. Today's episode is a roundup episode. As we ease into the Easter holiday, I'd like to share with you some highlights and takeaways from six of our favorite episodes so far. Season two of the GVA Legal Podcast came to an end last month. In total, we have recorded 24 episodes since we started the season in August last year. I'd like to encourage you to take some time this weekend to get caught up on all our episodes. And to motivate you, let me take you through six of our favorite episodes so far. At number six is episode three, titled Parental Responsibility and Child Custody Made Simple. In this episode, we had a conversation with Ibrahim Alubala, an advocacy and child rights governance technical specialist at Save the Children to answer common questions related to parental responsibility, child custody, and co-parenting. Take a listen to a snippet from the episode on instances when parental responsibility can be extended beyond a child's 18th birthday. Ideally, uh, when you talk about parental responsibility, it should uh, go until the 18th birthday, ideally. But the law has provisions around extension of parental responsibility. And again, this is a carryover of the 2001 legislation where the law anticipated that you could have extension of parental responsibility beyond the 18th birthday. And uh, that can be done before the, the, the child attains age 18 or even after. Uh, this was a subject of a very interesting case that was decided incidentally by the current chief justice. Uh, and in that case, a girl whose father was actually a lecturer at the university. It's a case that is in the public domain. Uh, you can get it in the Kenya law reports. This girl was um, admitted to pursue a course at the University of Nairobi, and uh, the father and the mother had separated. The girl who was now beyond 18 uh, moved to court to make an application that the parental responsibility should be extended beyond the 18th birthday. Initially, the magistrate's courts were a bit hesitant on that uh, because the argument was that this is not basic education. Issues of basic education, you can actually seek for extension of parental responsibility. But Lady Justice Martha Kome, as she then was, because uh, this was a matter in the High Court, actually made an order that the um, parental responsibility should be extended beyond the 18th birthday and uh, that the father should actually pay university fees uh, for this girl. That's a very interesting application where the child is the one who makes a conscious application to have the parental responsibility extended beyond their 18th birthday. Yes. I'd like to ask about situations where you have what they would call a special needs child. So a child yes. who is suffering from a debilitating or condition that limits their ability to function completely. And that child reaches the age of majority. Can a parent ask for or request for parental responsibility to be extended beyond this child's 18th birthday? Or is the assumption that the parental responsibility will continue? The current act has actually expanded the scope. So uh, like you've mentioned, an issue of disability, uh, that is one area that um, the act has actually anticipated that parental responsibility would be definitely be extended. In terms of the general advisories that um, courts would apply uh, on a case-by-case -case situation, and therefore, if there is any uh, good reason as to why anybody would uh, want parental responsibility to be extended, then uh, that application should be made in court. It's on a case by case. But the Act actually has instances w where parental responsibility should actually be extended and disability is certainly uh, one of them. At number five is episode seven, titled Consumer Protection in Kenya, What You Need to Know. 
In this episode, we had a conversation with Boniface Kamiti, the manager, consumer protection at the Competition Authority of Kenya on the rights of consumers and the remedies available when a product or service does not meet the acceptable standard. Take a listen to a snippet from the episode on the actions available to the Competition Authority after investigation of a consumer complaint. Our section 36 uh, spells out uh, the action after investigation. So we could declare conduct to be a violation of the act. We could uh, now come in to impose uh, various remedies. Uh, one, we could um, impose remedies such as fines, uh, pecuniary penalties. Parties uh, that have been accused or um, are in the matter can settle with the authority under Section 38 of uh, the Act at any point of the investigation and uh, would get into what we'd call a negotiated uh, settlement. Uh, where the authority may also impose a pecuniary penalty amongst other conditions and uh, remedies, basically to ensure this deterrence and uh, consumers are protected. That's the main aim of the authority, to ensure that you as a consumer, you are protected from that particular conduct. But um, most importantly, even as we uh, impose those remedies, we create awareness to undertakings and accused parties regarding the need to protect the rights or to enhance the rights of consumers. So we come in to not just impose remedies, but to educate uh, them. So we have uh, awareness programs with those parties where we come in to educate their staff on consumer rights and the provisions of the Act. At number four is episode 17, titled Unpacking the NSSF Act 2013. In this episode, we had a conversation with Deborah Kibagendi, the legal officer at Octagon Africa, and Winnie Nasirumbi, the assistant legal officer at Octagon Africa, on the NSSF Act 2013, its contentions, and the implications of the implementation of the Act for employers, employees, and pension schemes. Take a listen to a snippet from the episode on the changes the Act has brought to the pension regime in Kenya. You will appreciate that in the previous regime, um, what we had was only a provident fund, so that once a member retires, you're given your monies as a lump sum. Um, but now the Act provides for two funds, a pension fund and a provident fund. So now we remit monthly, and then once you retire, you get monthly payments rather than a one-off lump sum payment. Um, and then the provident fund, which will cater basically to self-employed individuals who wish to contribute for their social security uh, to be accessible at retirement. Also, what it means that we've increased our contribution so that the employer now is required to pay 6% and also the employee is required to match that or rather the employees required to pay 6% from their pensionable earnings and the employer will match the same. Uh, so dependent on the act, it talks about lower earnings limit and upper earnings limit. There's a cap on 6,000 for the lower earnings limit. We'll have a, a specific tabulation for them and also for people who are earning uh, above 18,000. Uh, so basically the general thing we should be able to appreciate is now the contributions are coming from the 200 that we were paying previously in the previous regime to now to increased amount. At number three is episode 18, titled Recordation of IP Rights, What You Need to Know. In this episode, my colleague Wilson Wahome and I had a conversation with Dr. John Akoten, the Director, Research Policy and Quality Assurance at the Anti-Counterfeit Authority on the process of recordation of intellectual property rights. Take a listen to a snippet from the episode on the importance of IPR recordation. Uh, when you talk about um, IPR recordation, remember that IPR, uh, intellectual property rights, 
it refers to the rights given to persons uh, over the creation of their mind. So if you come up with um, some creativity, uh, you would want to, to register that particular, you know, uh, creativity uh, through registration. So you come up with uh, intellectual property rights. So uh, some of these rights, of course, include uh, trademarks. Uh, for example, we have water, aquamist, and so on. Uh, we have the industrial designs. If you look at the bottles, the way it's been designed. So that's the industrial design. Uh, we have the patent. Uh, that talks about you know the, how a system works. For example, if it's a computer, how make how does the computer work and so on. So that's the patent. And then we also have the utility models. We have the copyright and so on. So all these are intellectual property rights. So these intellectual property rights they are registered by an institution. For example, in Kenya we have the Kenya Industrial Property Institute that registers uh, industrial designs, you know, patents and so on. And then we have the copyrights that are administered by the Kenya Copyright Board. Now, when you're talking about uh, recordation, is that recordation basically refers the process of uh, collecting and entering that kind of information about the intellectual property right into an online database that can be accessed by you know a business person, whoever wants, let's say, to import goods and so on, be able to know what kind of intellectual property right has already been uh, recorded uh, with ACA. So this information has to be provided to ACA. Uh, and the intellectual property right doesn't have to be registered in Kenya. It can be registered elsewhere, but we collect that, that information and we put it in a system. So basically, recordation uh, is, in a nutshell, is recording uh, information about the intellectual property right that has already been registered by local institutions. And, um, Dr. if in coming up with the concept of recordation, what was the logic or the objective behind that? Now, the main objective of recordation is that um, we need to deal with issues of uh, counterfeiting at the source. Because from our own research, we found out that uh, around 80% of counterfeits are imported. So it's only around 20% of uh, counterfeit which are locally manufactured. So for us really to deal with issues of imported uh, counterfeits, we came up with what's called uh, IPR recordation. This is a system that has also been used also in other countries like the US. At number two is episode 20, titled Innovation and Technology for Gender Equality. We recorded this episode to commemorate International Women's Day, which is celebrated on 8th March each year. This year, the theme for the UN International Women's Day was Digital, Innovation and Technology for Gender Equality. So in honor of that day, and in keeping with the theme, we had a conversation with Grace Murugi, who is the head of digital strategy at Oxfam International, on the digital gender gap in Kenya. Take a listen to a snippet from the episode on the barriers that prevent women from accessing the internet and other digital technologies. And I would say the main barrier is uh, the varying income levels in the country. Um, so we'll find that men will do a job and then they'll get paid something uh, like a certain amount of money. And then women will do, you know, a similar job and they'll get paid a different amount. And so I think the varying income levels definitely becomes like a barrier for women um, trying to access the internet, um, especially because to access the internet, there's a, you need you need devices, but also you need to spend money in terms of access um, through either Wi-Fi in the house or through data um, on your mobile device. And so and so those those would be the biggest barriers that are preventing women from accessing the internet. Um, and Safaricom, while I was there, I did a lot of work, a lot of good work 
to be able to bridge this gap, but not just for women, from a general perspective, um, getting uh, people to uh, <clears throat> to access smartphone devices at an affordable cost. So there was even a product where we were allowing people to pick a smartphone device from one of the shops, and then you just pay for it uh, slowly. It was called Lipam Dogom Dogo. And so, and so those are some of the initiatives that really helped to be able to bridge this gap. And I think the other thing I would mention is, is the World Economic Forum report. And one of the things that just really surprises me is that yeah. the report states that it'll take a decade to close the income gap globally. Yeah. And so once we've been able to like say the non-profit world has done its bit, governments have done their bit, commercial entities have done their bit, we will be able to close this gap and therefore um, lower the barriers for women accessing technology and the internet. Finally, at number one is our two-part insolvency series released last week. In this series, my colleague Julie Mulindi and I had a conversation with Beatrice Osicho, the Deputy Official Receiver at the Office of the Official Receiver of the Republic of Kenya on the Insolvency Act 2015 and the challenges to the insolvency process in Kenya. Take a listen to a snippet from the episode on the alternative rescue mechanisms available to companies. Now, specific to companies, the alternatives uh, to liquidation of entities, there's an insolvency procedure known as company administration. And the objective of this uh, rescue mechanism is to maintain the company as a going concern and then to achieve a better outcome for the company's creditors as a whole than would have been if the company was liquidated. And then um, if that cannot be achieved to realize the property of the company in order to make a distribution for one or more secured, secured being that uh, probably it's a creditor who has a charge or a security over the assets of the company or a preferential creditor. So a preferential creditor would include um, employees to also include uh, the Kenya Revenue Authority. Now, administration is achieved because there's legal ring fence that is imposed by the law or can be sought from the court. And this legal uh, ring fence is a moratorium on various actions that a creditor can take as against an insolvency company. So it's a moratorium against uh, the institution or con continuation of legal proceedings against distress or execution proceedings that a landlord may pursue and just a suspension of various actions that creditors can take uh, as against a, com a company that's in distress. And the attraction of this process is that it allows a company to now focus on a clear turnaround plan, if any, or if it cannot, then to be able to have enough time to assess that and to either elect um, whether it's going to continue as a going concern or if it will now uh, pursue a managed shutdown. Uh, in the, this was something we actually borrowed from our colonizer. <laughs> and in the UK, uh, this uh, insolvency procedure has been transformational. And I believe it will be in Kenya. There are very many companies which have taken advantage of corporate administration. Now, there's another rescue mechanism. These are voluntary arrangements. Now, specific to companies, they will be called company voluntary arrangements. And it's a sit down uh, between the creditors and the directors of the company. 
uh, in which they come into an agreement. And that's why it's called a voluntary arrangement. They come into an agreement uh, which is then adopted uh, by the court uh, and there's a supervisor who will manage uh, the implementation of that agreement. Now, in Kenya, it's not so popular because it's a very technical process and there's also a lot of consensus that's required uh, to achieve that. But we have seen companies like Uchumi uh, who have taken advantage of that process. Uh, there's a proposal for Britannia to also uh, consider that process. And these are avenues which can help companies either revive or if not, give a better return to creditors than if we just went straight into liquidation or we wound up the company. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, maybe one of the things I should have mentioned uh, as the reason for moving to this new um, area of the law is because we wanted to introduce the rescue culture in this country, especially for companies that were, they have potential for viability. Maybe they've just undergone very difficult times. Um, you saw the effect COVID-19 had on a lot of businesses that were actually running on profitability, but then we had this shutdown that stopped movements and you found companies that relied on moving and people meeting actually got into a lot of trouble that were otherwise profitable if it were not for the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the beauty with the rescue culture is not only are we trying to, to rebuild this company back to productivity and profitability, we're also trying to, to just um, help them maintain some sort of control. You'll see with administration, the process is supposed to be very short. So the intention is not to deny the directors the chance to run their company because you know how emotional people can be in their businesses. But you're trying to just bring in a, a professional who has the technical know-how, not just how to run a business. They have to have that technical know-how of how to run a failing business and try and bring it back to profitability. With CVAs, it's even better because now you do not relinquish control of your company to anyone. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is have a, a supervisor who will make sure that you actually adhere to the, to the terms of the proposal if it has been approved by the creditors. And what it does, it also gives a breathing space for the company to come up with this mechanisms that can drive them back to profitability or put in place these mechanisms that will drive them back to profitability. That brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank you, our listeners. We've been consistent in trying to get these episodes to you once a week and you have listened. Thank you. Make sure you leave a comment and let us know what your favorite moment or insight has been from this season and from our podcast so far. Our email address is info at gvalawfirm.com. You can also follow Gikera and Badgama Advocates on social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as GVA Law Farm. Thank you for joining us on the GVA Legal Podcast. I'm your host, Jean Kambuni. Have a great Easter holiday. Let's go.